For September 2nd, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 583, The Performance of Crescendo. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are standing each other in front of each other with a microphone, making one another laugh. I mean, I guess I'm seated, and Pete, you're seated as well, aren't you? Yeah, I haven't gone full standing desk just yet. I have not changed quite so much. No, it's a, though, though I hear that sitting is the new cancer and that it's literally killing us, uh, literally killing us. But that's, I'm, I'm not rather, that's the voice of, of Pete Fenzel. We are uh, the sit-down comedians who are uh, <laughs> doing one of our, uh, I guess they call this a double bill, Pete. It's, a, it's one of our storied double bills. Uh, it's like Pete and I are doing a co-headlining tour of, uh, you know, of theaters all around the country where uh, one night I open for him the next night he opens for me and we we reverse that way uh, every night like two actors playing uh, opposite roles in true west or something like that um and our uh, our good friend Mark Lee actually is on a stand-up comedy tour. He's uh, the support act uh, for his little boy's stand-up comedy tour in the the Berkshires this weekend. So if you haven't cottoned on yet, we're we're talking about stand-up comedy. Uh, it, isn't that isn't that right, Pete? That's that's what uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know what the premise of a joke is, but we're about to talk about stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah, and not just in a general sense. We're going to talk about some specific stand-up comedy. That's, yeah, that's a good point. So I've I've been trying for. For a long time um, to get Pete into uh, the stand-up comedian Stuart Lee, um, and, who is a British stand-up comedian, and uh, has kind of an interesting interesting story. But the 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 point for for this the the point to at least get into the conversation, what you need to know about him is that he's he's very smart. He's university educated. He does cultural commentary. He writes you know newspaper columns and and arts reviews, mostly of records and and you know uh, political commentary. And his shows are all very kind of culturally engaged, and he's uh, you know um, with a lot of references and a lot of you know a lot of stuff. It's very it's it's very over on brand sort of overthinking it uh, stuff. Now, I the first time I was introduced to Stuart Lee was actually in the comments section of Overthinking It, and it was in a comment on. I'm going to dig up the actual comment in a second, but it's a, it's a, in a comment on I think the TV show Skins, which was on E4. Um, which is, you know, the, like, I think it was like the cable only version of channel four in the UK or like the, the satellite version or something. It was like an extra channel from channel four. It was like channel four prime. It was called E4. And, um, the, the, uh, the joke that Stuart Lee made about, um, channel four was that if, if, uh, if, uh, or about E4 was that if Channel 4 was like a uh, just a river of poop, he used a different word, a river of poop that flowed unbidden into your house, uh, Channel E4, which you had to pay extra for, was as though you had constructed an extra sluice to funnel more poop <laughs> into your own house. And this is when we were talking about uh, the, telev- the uh, scandalous and racy television show Skins. Um, one of our listeners, uh, one of our listeners and comments commenters uh, made that uh, referred me to that. Now, I promptly forgot about that until I heard about him on another podcast, and I got uh, way into him through uh, uh, Netflix, a series of kind of stand-up, half-hour stand-up uh, television shows he did that Netflix broadcast one season of. I ended up, I you 
know, I couldn't get a lot of it in the United States. So a couple of copies of things may have fallen off of the back of a truck or off of the back of a lorry, as they say, or off of the back of an international flight into LAX airport. Um, and I got like, I got super, I like, I, I think what the kids say is I stand for this guy or I stand this guy. Pete, is stan a transitive or an intransitive verb? I think it's transitive because okay. it's based off of the Eminem song, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, it, is it? I don't know. <laughs> I, That's look, what I thought it was. I thought, uh, what, I thought which one? Stan. I stand. Whatever you say, I stand. No. If it wasn't, <laughs> why would I say yeah. I stand? No. It's 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 from it's from Forgot About Dre. No, the song Stan, where he has a fan named Stan in who the writes place, the obsessive it, letters. In the place where yeah. you live. Um, no. <laughs> it's a it's a, I so I think Stan is um Okay, so so look, this is wow from Oxford, uh, appropriately powered by Oxford, the Oxford English Dictionary. Stan, a contraction of stalker fan, is a um, an overzealous or obsessive fan of a particular celebrity. So you know, uh, I'm sure the Overthinking It podcast has millions of stands or uh, a verb, uh, an intransitive verb. So I stand for Stuart Lee. Uh, or I stand for Taylor Swift. One of those statements is true, and the other one is a lie. <laughs> so it's intransitive, is what. Yeah, it saying. is, and I, I okay. definitely. And so I started like collecting material. I read like his books, and uh, when I happened to when I happened to be going to Europe for work, I made sure I had like a layover, a stopover in London. I, you know, when you're arranging work trips, you can do things like th- like this, I guess, or at least I could on this occasion. And I went to see his live show uh, content provider in London, uh, after which he was signing things like a, like a rock band. He was like signing albums in the, in the lobby. Uh, and I went up to him and introduced myself and said, thank you for, you know, I enjoyed the show and I flew in from Los Angeles this morning and boy, are my arms tight. No, I didn't say that. I, uh, I said, I flew in from Los Angeles this morning and he looked at my, my one measly book and started piling merchandise on top of it, <laughs> which he signed and gave to me for free, uh, because I had flown in internationally to to see his <laughs> to see his show so uh uh class act Stuart Lee and that's uh that's my um you know sort of association with him and so that and he's a very smart stand-up his recent show is called content provider it's about I, I mean well it's about it purports to be about the the kind of the role of the artist of kind of individual artistic expression in a uh digitized information economy is that a fair thing to say well, that's what he says it's about over and over yeah, again. It's not, and it's not actually about that, but that is what it no. purports to be about. Yeah. Um, it's about, you know, politics. It's about a lot of things, and we'll get into that. And so we wanted to, uh, we wanted to contrast this maybe against a, a dumb stand up, you know, right. like, or like have a, have some sort of thing to throw this into relief. And Pete, I'll let you pick up the narration from here. Oh, yeah. So, so, I mean, how do you find out? A, who is the dumbest, well, not necessarily the dumbest stand-up, but the dumbest stand-up content that you can watch. Uh, and also, you, of course, don't want to pay for it. So it's, uh, it's you know, it's a tall order. You go into Netflix and you look at what they have available. And first, I think it was Fluffy Iglesias, because he looks, it's very, um, and when I say dumb, I don't necessarily just mean bad, right? I, I mean lowbrow in the way that Stuart Lee is highbrow, except that doesn't really capture it either. Because one of the things that's interesting about Stuart Lee is when you told me about him, I expect him to be more like Mike Birbiglia, to be somebody uh. who performs a show that's ostensibly 
it's similar to a stand-up show in the way that you experience it in terms of commoditizing it, right? Yeah. Like, buy a ticket, maybe you get a couple of drinks, and Mike Birbiglia tells you st- observational stories about his life. But Mike Birbiglia's storytelling and more of a performance art kind of tradition, and it's it's so uh ele- you know uh, sort of delicate that it's no longer really stand up in in a sort of uh in a qualio kind of way it doesn't feel like stand up stuart lee feels like stand up right he uses lots of dirty language he he talks about being uh, commoditized in order to make you laugh right he sees the challenge of making the audience laugh as a very key part of what he's doing and as inseparable from the task of what he's accomplishing which i think is one of the things that characterizes stand up as a sort of mercenary profession and thus the stand-up comic as a specific sort of mercenary figure. So uh, we could go with somebody like a Jeff Dunham or a Fluffy Iglesias, where you feel like, uh, and again, I haven't actually watched any Fluffy Iglesias, but Matt waved it off pretty fast, but he seems like somebody who's very lighthearted and doesn't really bring a lot of heavy-duty stuff to the table. Is that fair to say about Fluffy Iglesias? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a couple of, of stand-up specials on, on Netflix. I got I got shown them by a woman I'm not dating anymore, <laughs> and uh, like years ago. Uh, and it didn't last very long because you know uh, we we like different sorts of stand up comedy, and that's just the sort of thing that'll kill a relationship. And so now, all of a sudden, this all got really heavy. But it right? was pleasant. <laughs> the, the other thing, the other thing, it was is that like it's very pleasant. You know, yes. the the fluffy fluffy Iglesias shows that I've seen, and, and you know, I saw a couple of specials. They're like they're it's like a party atmosphere. Like the the specials I saw were shot in like big arena type of uh, venues. Like people are. Are, are like shouting and dancing. People are having a good time. Like the, it's it's a party, and it was almost too joyful to yeah. kind of be the thing that that I knew you were looking for. Right, because that isn't dumb, right? That's maybe has a childlike glee aspect to it. No, it's carnival. But, yeah. It's great. It's carnival. Great. It's yeah, party. exactly. Right, exactly. And so we settled, of course, on a man who is his. Would probably, I would say, in the actual set, admitted to being very dumb multiple times. And when he does stand up in particular, uh, acts even dumber than he is, yeah. which is uh, the illustrious Joe Rogan. Yes. So, yes. Uh, and as soon as I, as soon as we came up, we were Dr. like, Dr. Yes. Dr. Joe, Joe Rogan, PhD. Yeah. Dr. Professor Joe Rogan, Esquire, um, <laughs> also known as, you know, the the only the only guy who will uh, cast skepticism on your choice of doctor and then side kick you right <laughs> front side kick you when you spare in his spare time uh and um and he, he has he, a Netflix he did, special. did yep. he also go to oxford like Stuart lee did <laughs> i think i think he went to oxfam uh, <laughs> to get aid or something for his desperate situation i don't even know that joke no, doesn't no, even no. make he, sense he no he went to he went to oxfam to mock the yes. suffering people who were getting aid yes. from that worthwhile yeah. organization he, he went to oxfam to learn what an african accent sounds like so that he could lampoon it in a racist way in his stand-up set so um and again he'll i i feel like in the style of joe rogan i need to continually pause and tell you that joe rogan would also say the same things about his stand-up because during his stand-up he pauses to tell you that this about him give you meta commentary which is something he and Stuart Lee have very much in common and we discovered in watching the two sets side by side which was uh, Strange Times a 2018 set by Joe Rogan which is mostly about him pretending to be animals but it's, <laughs> and when it's at its best it's about him doing like impressions of house cats <laughs> 
But a, but like sort the of cat, some angry. of the some of the strongest material is the yeah. cat based yeah. material because you have the sense that there's a real core of sincerity and vulnerability to how Joe Rogan feels about cats that isn't shared with how he feels about people right like he has a certain softness for cats and puppies that he does not certainly does not have for for women and arguably does not have for men either uh, but at any rate um, the, no watched, bro it, he's sexist against men yeah come on man not a come thing. On. Uh, I'm going to yell at you and say things, um, which is, I guess, part of what all this is going on. But so we watched Strange Times and we watched Content Provider, which have a lot of similarities in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and how they go about accomplishing it, which I think gives us a good opportunity to talk about the ways in which they are very, very different. Uh, I mean, I would venture to say that both sets are about a sense of dislocation associated with political change. Yep. Uh, And and they come at it from different directions, right? Joe Rogan uh, is more conservative than Stuart Lee is. Stuart Lee is also from Britain. So by default, he's less conservative than than Joe Rogan is, right? Yeah, because the Overton window just occupies a different kind of range of the political spectrum in Britain. Right, right. And so... Uh, but but they're also they're sort of objects of preoccupation are somewhat different in that uh, Stuart Lee is primarily preoccupied with Brexit and Joe Rogan is predominantly preoccupied with, um, I guess, what woke culture, yeah, but not with the loss not, of being, yeah. the, with the kind of the loss of status, you know. Yeah, that's uh, a better way of saying. It. Yeah, go ahead. With with a loss of status. Now, I mean, I I should say that the, that if you watch a lot of Stuart Lee, his whole thing is about a loss of status, right? Like every Stuart Lee show is about the character of Stuart Lee, the kind of like puffed up, insufferably pedantic, you know, superior snob character that he creates for these things, kind of trying to do the job of being a stand-up comedian and failing at it. And like the first 15 minutes of his show is like, I couldn't do it because of Brexit, right? I couldn't write jokes because the political situation, I had to tour this show for 18 months to monetize the content, and I couldn't write write a show that would be stable from night to night that I could tour uh, because the political situation was so volatile and so no no topic would be would be reliably funny you know right. and yep. um uh right I couldn't uh what it, the joke is uh the joke at the beginning and by the way we're going to probably like quote unquote spoil uh these things and like d- talk about quote material that uh, in in depth. So if you want to go watch them, go watch them and then go, uh, then come back to the podcast. Um, the joke at the beginning was I couldn't, I couldn't write, I, I won't do jokes about Brexit, uh, because why would I commit to a course of action for which there was no logical or financial justification? Right. And that right. And it's like, and then of course him being him, there's a huge laugh. He looks up and says, Oh, it was about Brexit after all, you know, and uh, is sort of constantly kind of undermining or sort of showing the, uh, showing the wizard's um, curtain, uh, like showing the kind of the machinery of the the show working. So he, he uses a lot of meta comedy. But anyway, the the in the plot, in the kind of the the manifest plot of the the uh, two hour two hour uh, yeah. show that he does. Um, the first fifteen minutes is about how he can't do stand up because he's. Uh, 
because of uh, because of Brexit. And so like the and the the idea that like the character is failing at doing stand up comedy um, and then co- somehow kind of brings it back, brings it around together, which is a, a kind of a plot that's shared by a lot of his long form stuff. Like it does a lot of things. It creates an arc for the night. It allows the audience to kind of win the night uh, in some way, because like by by the end, when it's like when it all comes together and you realize that it was planned this way all along and there's this great sense of satisfaction, like it really it really engineers um, a, a great sense of satisfaction. And then it's also like it really plays with status in that in, in a, a complex way, because it's it's about how it's always about how like, you know, why why does no one recognize my genius? You know, right. and like, uh, so it's about a loss of status in, in that way as well. But it's a lot more, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like it's a lot more, um, I feel like it's a lot more knowing, you know, uh, right. I, because like the, 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 or if I had to deconstruct the, like the, if I had to sh- diagram out the, or Joe, Joe Rogan joke from this set, it's like, I'm not, you know, prejudiced. I'm not like, uh, I don't, I don't have a, the prejudice against X people. Uh, yeah, I'm actually prejudiced against Y people. Y people have it so much harder than X people because of their inherent superiority to them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's every, that's like every, there are four or five sort of major chunks of this show. And that's, that's what they all are, right? Whether it's yeah. men and women, whether it's racial, whether it's like, uh, uh carnivores and vegans, you know, the, it's just yeah. the, the whole thing. But I'm sorry, I took us on a tangent, Pete. No, no, it's okay. So, so it's interesting to think about this, right? So in the, um, in the Joe Rogan set, first of all, each portion of it stands entirely alone. Right. You have a you have about an hour of content and it's every 10 minutes he switches to a different topic. And there isn't there's an underlying tone that runs across the whole piece. And he has a personality that runs across the whole piece. But the individual, the the content, the the information that's in the jokes isn't transferable from one part of the show to the other. Whereas mm. Stuart Lee's show is very crafted. Right. And and so it's a question of whether to you that level of complexity makes it more fun or makes it more of a burden for you. And that's something that Stuart Lee kind of always is constantly calling into question when he's making fun of himself. But like, like, so for example, right. Um, and I, and I do agree with you that the, that's a pretty, pretty quintessential kind of Joe Rogan joke, but I would want to drill down a little bit more into what he's doing and why it's funny for his, why it's funny. Right. Cause I don't, I don't think that nothing in the Joe Rogan set is funny. I think a fair amount of it is funny. Uh, but it's funny in ways that are different than the ways that, uh, Stuart Lee's are funny. And also I'm not the kind of person who would say that just because something is funny means it's necessarily right. Right. So, uh, so I will say that, but, but what I would, what it say is that, um, it's so interesting. Let's stick a pin in that and come back to it. Yeah. So, Cause a lot of people use the fact that something is funny as defense uh, that it's, that it's correct or right or exactly. morally upright. Right. Though you ought to and, do it as though that, that covers all sins. All right. Don't stick a right. pin in it. We covered it. I mean, that's okay. So, so a good, Joe Rogan's, when, when you're talking about these kinds of jokes, you're, you're talking about there's something that's, there's a sleight of hand that has to happen, right? A misdirection, something that's hidden and then gets revealed, something that is, there's an expectation that you kind of surprise and also fulfill at the same time. Stuart Lee in his set talks about, uh, I wrote this quote down, he overstates a perceived truth or overstates a contrary position for comic effect, right? Is overstated perceived truth for comic effect overstate a contrary position for comic effect. And what Joe Rogan is doing is he makes very, very simple binary juxtap- like uh, reversals, 
right? So he'll pick a group, he'll pick a question on which there are two, there's a there's a dichotomy. There's two things that are in opposition to each other. There's literally cats and dogs. This, this, this set is a lot about cats and about dogs. And then he also extends it to being about himself and people he opposes politically, right? And it's like, uh, there, there's people who are, that are like this, and then there's people like that, right? And then he switches them in terms of the expectation uh, what you would expect him to say or talk about. And that's mildly surprising, right? Um, so, for example, there's a lot about how cats, and this is very common, right? Cats are kind of inborn hunters and aggressive and savage, and dogs are kind of milk toasty and uh, and guilty and and incapable of standing up for themselves, which is something of an inversion of of something of a of a conventional wisdom about dogs, which is that they're bigger and and cats are kind of home pets and dogs can go outside, uh, and and so he he makes some very sort of basic hay out of switching these two things and juxtaposing these two things, um, and uh, I mean the one the, the the sort of the best part of the set for me was probably when he was talking about he wasn't even really making jokes, but he was talking about out um the the physical distress that cats are in when they're fed plants um right and i don't i don't trust joe rogan's knowledge as a veterinarian right but the way in which he communicated the distress of the cat by kind of performing it against the expectation that he'd set out for what cats were really like yeah like a cat sits inside the window that cat has never been outside sees a squirrel outside and starts like salivating and thinking about how much it wants to kill the squirrel even though it doesn't understand what those concepts are which is interesting because it plays into a lot of his essentialist politics right this idea that well people can never be taught something and they still have a nature Right. Uh, which which is intrinsic to his whole worldview about the inherent superiority of men over women, um, which, of course, I would not defend for, for a heartbeat. But it sort of it all makes it all kind of fits together. Right. There's a reason why he's essentialist about animals. And it's because he's also essentialist about people. Um, and and so then he reverses it by making the cat who is the savage hunter also be like dying with uh, with like clouded over eyes like wincing in, in pain on the couch and it's this is this performance of watching him experience the surprise at his own statement because he pretend because where Stuart lee is his sort of bait and switch with who he is is i'm a really smart successful critically acclaimed bafta award-winning stand-up and uh and i'm also a commercial failure and nobody knows who i am right um and joe rogan's mm. is like i'm really dumb and I'm an animal and everybody is always mad at me for saying things because I'm stupid. Right. Which is not why everybody is always mad at him. <laughs> They're mad at him because he says provocative <laughs> things in order to make people mad. And he hurts me. And he's like a nasty, mean spirited person. Right. Um, which I, I mean, and he would say, I mean, he's also a fighter. Right. And so it's like not this is not a stretch to say that that Joe Rogan likes to hurt people uh, and, and and would probably argue that if you're not willing to hurt people, you don't belong in the comedy business, which is another kind of larger question. But but that's that's what I'm talking about in terms of like what are the reversals? What is the revelation? It's that the Joe Rogan reveals to you things that you wouldn't think that he believes because they are either too stupid or too crass or too like an inborn prejudice that I'm not supposed to voice outwardly, right? Uh, and then the moment of revelation is watching him surprise himself by saying it, mm. uh, and and uh, and that's sort of his sort of little uh, you know. His little snooker, like hit one ball into the other, hit one ball into the other, uh, kind of billiards trick with his comedy, and, and it's a, and it it is very kind of um, 
it's very flat, right? It, it kind of progresses. There's one little bit. There's another little bit. There's another little bit. It never really collects much steam, but it's there to transactionally get the laughs. And he describes it to the audience. Both of these sets have long sections in the sets where the stand-ups describe the meta process of doing stand-up to the audience and also where they make funny voices making fun of their detractors in in sort of in anticipation of what they're going to say about the set that you're currently watching. And, and Joe Rogan's kind of argument, if you were to write it out like a beginning of a chapter of Paradise Lost, the best stand-up set in the history of the English language... <laughs> Is actually Paradise Lost is notable for being a sit down as opposed to Shakespeare, which is a stand up, right? What's the um, deal? What's the deal with this man's first disobedience? Right? <laughs> which is which is like um, the argument is that um, you pay me to make you laugh because I have problems, and and I and because of these sort of problems, whether they're stupidity, whether they're a lack of social grace, whether it's like the, a sort of sense of pain and suffering that was born into him by his like what many people would refer to as like toxic masculinity in his in his rearing, right? Um, which is like you know he talks about it in the set. Yeah. I, when I was a kid, I was mistreated by my family and by other people, but he doesn't frame it like that because he doesn't have that level of self awareness, right? Uh, in his in his character, or I don't even know. In real life but because i've been screwed up in this way and because i am bad at relating to other people in a way that doesn't upset them i say things that surprise you and make you laugh and that's the value that i bring to you and that's why you pay me to do this in front of you right is to give you that laughter whereas with Stuart lee and i can hand over to you matt to see if you can unpack the Stuart lee side of this dichotomy a little bit Oh yeah, I guess uh, where I mean, whereas with Stuart Lee, it's uh, the I don't know what would you say. I I was thinking when you were saying that the Joe Rogan kind of stand up thing is like yes, I what what he's saying is that I am the I am kind of a you know I am kind of a truth teller you know, and you you are paying me for this. Um, the the uh, uh, you're you're paying me for this, and and there's kind of an implicit there's an implicit claim in there as like you shouldn't be mad at me, you should or you should be grateful yeah. to me, right? Like or right. or you can't like actually the one of the things is yeah, pretty pretty good bit of of audience relating, even though it's it's hideous. He's like no, uh, the I think the bit he does is like women don't invent things, right? Like women yeah. women have never invented, you know, most inventors are men or whatever, uh, right? Completely, you know. Whether or not that's true, in fact, and I actually probably would bet on that proposition and not against it, it's true because of a lot of contingent reasons, uh, rather than because of the kind of the essentialist arguments that, you know, he, he wants to, to make. Like, and he, he puts his finger, he licks his finger and puts it in the air and it's like, oh, I feel a lot of car home arguments brewing in this thing. And then he acts out the, and, and aggrieved girlfriend being, you know, like, how can you agree with that? It's so sexist. Just drop me off in this you know uh very derisive uh sort of sort of way this kind of shrewish uh shrewish harpy um you know sort of way i mean the the uh i guess the the um and but the 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 kind of the earth like the the position from which it's done is is sort of a position of of high status, right? Like I am this way. I am a you know uh, beastly alpha male, you know crass uh, fighter. You know I, I you know, kill things for for sport and whatever. Like um, whatever goes along with that. I, I, however, he sort of frames that in the thing. The the Stuart Lee thing is done from dis, despite its being. Um, 
really uh, manifestly much more derisive. Like, uh, I, I think a, 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 a line in the show is like, I, you know, I'm good at stand-up comedy, and that's why I'm standing up here like a god, and you're all down there in the dark like pigs in an Essex ditch. <laughs> uh, yeah is a quote it's it's done d- despite the like the the manifest like like excoriation uh, of the audience it's done from a from a position of low status right because right. it's it's sort of like uh and and i i believe this is actually true of the the person Stuart lee though i i think he's probably a little more sanguine about it than than he is in the in the the show but like um He's he's not inclined to kind of rage rage against the dying of the light in the same way that that he that the character does in the course of the show. It's like I like I have devoted my life to the to the idea that certain things are important. And in fact, those things aren't important anymore. And, you know, whether it's generational or whether it's political, whether it has to do with education, you know, whether it does. I mean, he name checks a lot of other comedians, which is sort of appropriate for that character because that sort of uh, status obsessed um you know, uh, uh, character who like can't believe he's not more successful and people don't recognize his genius would be constantly comparing himself to everyone, uh, everyone around him. Um, he does, he does a, a joke about losing a BAFTA to Graham Norton. Um, and he oh, said, has he never won a BAFTA? I, no, he has, he has oh. won a BAFTA, but, uh, he then an, another time Graham Norton, uh, got it for, for best comedy. Um, and, uh, he says, and I was sitting there at the BAFTA and Graham Norton stood up and walked to the stage. He walked right past James Corden and James Corden has, you know, has said that he likes me, but he, he didn't stand up and bodily tackle Graham Norton to the floor so that I could go up and accept the BAFTA instead. And I'm perplexed by this like that, you know, and he makes it, he, he really does it. He, he really commits to the bit. It's like very, uh, you know, James Corden, he's like, he's a big guy, you know, he's a large man. He could take down Graham Norton easily. And the, the, um, the, uh, that like, uh, this sort of perplexity kind of makes him, makes him low status. So like the things that he's, um, you know, uh, so so that it gives him the impression of kind of punching up, you know, uh, because he's he's doing it from a from a pers- kind of an engineered position, but from a position of 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 disadvantage. The other thing that he does in this special, which is something that was a feature of Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle, is his uh, BBC Two um, TV show. Was uh, he has a hostile interlocutor? So in in the early seasons of uh, Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle, it was Armando Iannucci. Uh, then it was Chris Morris in later seasons, and in this, it's Alan Moore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Alan Effing Moore is yeah. like uh, plays a supporting role in uh, in this thing, and he just asks him questions of like, you know, uh, well, what, like, why are you such a failure at everything you do? Right? Is this is this like why are you you know this is a bad idea? Why why do you uh, why do you continue to do it? Um, and so the you know the idea of um you know the the uh the idea is is a lot less that like i am um i am sort of an alpha alpha dude this is my nature and i am forced to live in a world uh 
uh, forced to live in a world that does not value the things that it should value, does not value my, you know, manifest masculinity, doesn't value my um, uh, uh, dominance, uh, you know, my my ability to my ability to kind of control and to like to coerce and and you know my excellence at violence and and uh, and stuff like this. The 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 Stuart Lee like um, uh, it's it's a little bit. He's like, well, my my. Uh, he's sort of bemoaning his obsolescence, right? And right. and one one way I, I try there's there's one kind of stretch in this show that that has perplexed me ever since the first time that he that I uh, that I uh, saw it. And he it's a kind of an extended bit he does about his grandparents, and it's a story. It's a you know when I was your age, my grandparents used to tell me when I was your age, I used to you know walk both ways uphill to school in the snow. 15 miles with no shoes on and I didn't complain except it's about bondage sex it's about yes. like you know and it's like it's about how these kids today just like click on their phones and it's like oh I'm into bondage sex oh I went to a thing and I got some jam on my leg and oh I'm into bondage sex and it's like no when when my gra- my grandparents used to tell me about their experiences with bondage sex and they would have to walk 14 miles up the hill in the snow to get their their leather face mask which they would you know but which they would carve out of but they would sew out of burlap and it would gouge weeping sores in their face when they when they used it and it was like this it it's sort of about i mean the kind of the ridiculousness of that i think i think is meant to kind of rhyme with the ridiculousness of the position that the character finds himself in advocating for things like um uh you know contemplation or like the uh the kind of the original um of things he really has a go at ga- at game of thrones which i was wondering how you would react to that bit Pete. <laughs> oh i loved it i loved he is he's he's great at pointing to different sides so so joe rogan makes a dishonest and poor faith effort to uh kind of acknowledge that his own perspective isn't the only perspective and there and he doesn't mean it for a second he absolutely thinks that he's correct it, 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 that's how it comes across right is that that he absolutely does think that uh that women should be sexually demeaned and all these horrible things should happen to people in fact i shouldn't even necessarily recommend that you watch a set because it was pretty unpleasant to watch for most of it yeah, it's, it's about right, exactly it's about a half an hour before he gets to make the funny faces about cats which was the only part that i really like skip the, uh, yeah exactly skip the first yeah skip the first 25 30 minutes and skip the last 10 minutes as well it's the cat it's really the cat based uh the cat based <laughs> humor the the you know first 10 minutes the premise of which is what if harvey weinstein had been a woman had been a you know yeah, unple- it's very basic reversal right like <laughs> of the dichotomy and and it's and i mean it's horrible right it's yeah. it's absolutely horrible but you can see what joke he's making because he, he like all the strings are showing, right? right. And it's, it's like it's he's doing what the, he's doing the Stuart Lee definition. He's exaggerating a contrary position for comic right. effect, right? Yeah, but here's a good contrast, right? So the Stuart Lee section about old people doing S and M, which is wonderful because it's really it's really layered across different relationships in the the show. You know, old fashioned people versus new fashioned people. It's about Brexit and sort of uh, the idea of kind of turning inward and away from what he describes as the external world, right? 
Uh, and, and so it's like, oh, this I went from this little town to this little town to this little town to pick up a potato sack that I'm going to use as a gift mask. Right. Um, and, and it's it's simultaneously degrading the idea of the wisdom of the elders through their kind of old stories and also degrading his wisdom of the elders because he's been insulting young people for the past half an hour uh, talking about how he doesn't like how they use smartphones, which you hear on this podcast because we're also old. And, uh, and and he's and he's doing all this. So and he's also on top of it, bashing kind of people who uh, adopt hobbies without having to seriously invest time or effort into them. And uh, which, which, by the way, is something that there is an article on overthinking it about <laughs> by Matt Belinky. It was like when I was in college, I had to search on eBay for three weeks to find a dubbed VHS cassette of the original ending of Little Shop of Horrors, where the plants take take over the world. Now all that stuff's on YouTube. Yeah. And so Joe Rogan has an analogous section, which is about Fox News and how it depicts women, yeah. you might say, where where he talks about how and he starts out by doing the thing that I just said, which is like entertaining the briefly the possibility that people who disagree with him might be right, uh, which is that, yes, Fox News in general is like degrades women and doesn't respect them. And in fact, particularly fears and hates the political power of politically minded women. And and that's something that they are committed to as a mission. Right. Um, and especially those who are from certain parts of the country that aren't kind of sectionally very on board with their agenda. Uh, and so they're interested in kind of pointing out any sort of problems that 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 are exemplified in the character of women and ex- making excuses for the problems that are exemplified in the character of men, which is also what Joe Rogan does. Uh, but in this particular section, he talks about how Megyn Kelly is on Fox News and is next sitting next to Bill O'Reilly. And Megyn Kelly is he never actually says that he thinks Megyn Kelly is smarter than Bill O'Reilly, because he won't say that, even though it's true, probably. Um, but he talks about how Megyn Kelly is very smart, but how she's being degraded because she has to wear a little miniskirt, and you can basically see her underpants, right? Yeah. And so you can think about these two sections as being kind of analogous in Which that— he refers to, by the way, he refers to her underpants as the greatest show on earth. Right, right, right. So he is at one point kind of like saying, isn't this isn't this terrible that this woman who's so professionally accomplished is being exhibited in this way? But then he's also like really, really relishing it and kind of uh, encouraging the audience to also get sexually excited by it. Um, And so there's this element of kind of sexual excitement in the performance and alongside this idea of degradation. And there's also this sense of like degrading your heroes. Right. Um, because you're starting from a position of an authority that's supposed to be respected for what they say in the context of of what he's talking about. Uh, you know, with Stuart Lee, it's kind of the elderly, who, the greatest generation who fought in World War Two and protected England from the Nazis. And in, with Joe Rogan, it's, you know, the people who worked for Nixon and then became billionaires. So, you know, it's the same thing. Um, but uh, but at any rate, um, it's it's that uh, whose who's children idea. whose children became neo-Nazis. Well, exactly. Right. So, I mean, I don't want to get too political here. I don't want to go off on a rant here, but blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, Dennis, if you were to mix both of these sets together and spit them out into a slurry and then froze that slurry in, a, in, a, in a, an ice sculpture that uh-huh. you put out for a, a Veterans Day parade, it would probably look vaguely like Dennis Miller wearing a Top Gun jacket, uh, <laughs> which is also a, kind of a Dennis Millery joke. But at any rate, um, he, you can see a similar sort of interplay between the respect that you're supposed to have for the authority that he's talking about, the sort of interposition of the gross out sexual humor and the sort of libidinous sexual humor that he's using in a very, very, you know, id driven basic sort of way. And then also the kind of, you know, the under, you know, there's the undermining and the overmining at the same time. But the difference is that 
you know, Joe Rogan then sort of cashes it out with an awful line, just awful uh, about um, about Megyn Kelly's private parts. Where and what you're really seeing is a different kind of idea of what a climax is, and, and you know, not pun intended, right? Zing. Uh, yeah, which is that, which is that you're talking about the kind of performance of of crescendo, and the idea that a stand-up set has kind of many small crescendos, and it hits these various sorts of points and punchlines, and then if you have a set like Stuart Lee's, it has sort of larger arcs and larger crescendos that build in layers. If Joe Rogan, each one has maybe two or three layers, and each layer is about ten minutes long, but but it gets to this point, and the cash out isn't make, really make of the, about. Make of, yeah. make of that what you will, ladies. <laughs> but the cash out is about the very visceral, powerful feeling that Joe Rogan has about the situation. That it's that it's it's emotional, and it is not. And when I say it's dumb, I mean that it's not taking into consideration the the kind of textual and content of what he's just said. There's not really a cleverness that's arrived at there uh, because it's a different style of comedy and different style of humor. He's not trying to be clever. He's trying to, uh, you know, um, be, well, be edgy, right? And, and to, and to provoke surprise, not from the recognition of something that you didn't necessarily think you knew, but you knew anyway. Um, this idea of what happens when you, what is there when you pull back the curtain and what is the curtain is part of what interests me here in that the Stuart Lee's relationship between his kind of own self-respect and his own kind of self-loathing and the way that he positions kind of elite and popular culture in Britain as in opposition to each other and, and constantly kind of undermining each other creates situations of misdirection wherein when you arrive at the joke, it ends up feeling more clever, right? Uh, that having uh, in its relation to what's come before, although it also often has a very powerful visceral aspect as the end of the elderly SNM part really does. And I think actually Stuart Lee's when it's grosser. <laughs> Right. Like it's it's more disgusting, uh, although um, well, I mean, it actually I, so I mean, this is it, it's interesting, like because what about it is grosser? There, There's a closure yeah. aspect that's gro- grosser. Right. Like what, if, you know, what if uh, what if you you uh, Megan Kelly cr- crossed her legs on Fox News and you saw her underwear for a second or, you know, went went a little Sharon Stone for a second. Right. Like eh, what's really gross about that? Right. He, he doesn't, you know, um, but he he sort of like really makes that happen for you mentally yeah. um in the Stuart Lee one he, he doesn't he like it's it's a lot more devious right he doesn't he doesn't like force the closure down your throat as it were yeah. you know he like he kind of edges up to it and leaves it to you to imagine your grandparents having like uh s&m sex with you know homemade implements and a uh uh like a kind of scoop a like four finger scoop of baking grease instead of like professional uh, never mind the uh you know he, he like he sort of he leaves that to you like you get you sort of get it impressionistically but it doesn't you know uh it doesn't quite happen but i'm i am interested i'm interested in this idea of the feeling i mean you brought up mike berbiglia before and we haven't like we haven't talked about mike berbiglia uh we hadn't we didn't talk about talking about mike mike berbiglia but i really like mike berbiglia i for the same reason that i like Stuart lee i like these people who do pieces of theater essentially yeah. like who who do like a 90 minute or uh, you know the british just have like longer attention spans 
Um, they have longer attention spans. And if you watch their theater, like if you go and watch live performance over there, they don't, it, it doesn't need to be gratifying, like, uh, in, in quite the same way, right? Like you, it doesn't need to be kind of sensationalist, uh, in, in quite the same way that sort of a, American live performance needs to be sensationalist. And people are willing to like sort of sit and, you know, follow the development of uh, follow the development of an idea uh, over the course of well over the course of a two two hour show and um, the but but Mike Birbiglia is he does a very similar thing in that his his shows are very tightly constructed you know and they are. Um, uh, they involve a kind of character who is him, sort of exaggerating, you know. And the the stock the stock Mike Birbiglia line is uh, at least the one that I think of as being like um, sort of idiomatic with him is uh, when he says something that the audience reacts badly to, like, "Oh no, how could you do that?" or "How could you, you know, how could you have thought that?" or whatever. He's like, "Ah," and he says, "I, I know, I am also in the future." <laughs> like and like the the kind of the meta comedy thing you know the commentary on it comes comes in it through that way it's like yeah i get it you know um but they're they're um, they're much more they're much more Physic, they're much more physical in that, like a lot of his work is about actually the kind of the the rebellion of the body against the mind. Um, Sleepwalk with me is about his sleep disorder and the uh, the new show called the new one, um, which I saw before the Broadway. I saw when he was touring it and kind of working it up. Um, I uh, I saw is about becoming a father uh, and. That that like the kind of the biological process or the kind of the emotional process, the kind of family dynamic process that happens completely, uh, you know, completely independent of what you might plan or what you might desire. This sort of family dynamic process happens, and so there is this sense of like kind of the the, the rebellion of the body against the mind or the, the rebellion of the family against the mind. Um, there is another one, like if you saw "Thank God for Jokes," um, which leads up to a story of him like telling a. Uh, telling a, a joke about David Russell uh, at a big Hollywood thing, like it seems, it seems pretty, you know, pretty fancy. But it's it's about it's about integrity, you know what I mean? And it's about like, do I sacrifice? Do I do I do the kind of the the socially easy and the expedient thing, or do I kind of stick to my guns and and my values and and things like that? That that one operates a little bit. Um, a little bit differently, but, but in, in all cases, in all three cases, um, like emotion is a much bigger character, uh, than it is in the Stuart Lee thing. And I think that may, may have to do with just the kind of the national character of, you know, British and, and American entertainments, you know, the, the, the idea that like really deep feeling, you know, is sort of. Um, is sort of prized here. And it's not, I mean, you use the word vulnerability before, and I think without like getting maudlin or sentimental, right? Like the Stuart Lee uh, set does manage to like exhibit a lot of, uh, a lot of vulnerability in in the you know in the way that that um, performance like good performing sort of does, like it makes the performer sort of available, right? To the audience. Um, which is, you know, a, a scary thing and why people get afraid of, of performing. Um, like, it, it doesn't do it in, a, in an emotional way. And, like, Mike, Mike Birbiglia seems like a, uh, a good kind of touch point for comparison in, in that particular respect. I don't know. What do you think? 
um, that it's it is interesting. I do agree. One of the things that's interesting to me is Stuart Lee bashing Jimmy Carr. Yeah, <laughs> because I like Jimmy Carr. And uh, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of prejudice that plays into this on our sides, too. Who am I biased and predisposed to like versus dislike um, and all that? I, I want to admit that and then lampshade it just like uh, Joe Rogan does is. <laughs> uh, but uh I particularly enjoy, and I don't know if I've talked about uh, my fondness for 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown on the podcast. Um, and in particular, I mean, if I talk, if I talk, I don't think I have. I think I've just told yeah. you each about it privately. So, I mean, I love – maybe I have mentioned it once or twice. But I really love this Jimmy Carr-driven kind of comedy panel variation on this classic British game show, Countdown, where they have this stock group of stand-up and, and stash comedy performers who are joined by different guests every week, and then they do a bunch of arithmetic and anagram challenges, right? And they've got the actual dictionary you know, expert and uh, and actual mathematical expert women from Countdown, and there's a lot of status interplay. And I really like that show, and I consider one of the primary values of the show to be cleverness. And I don't mean in terms of what you get from watching it, but in what the show really believes in. Even though it's a show that is about people who aren't as good at math as the people who are – or maths, I should yeah. say – as the people who would normally be on the show, the comedy is definitely a, a sort of uh, smart cleverness wordplay. You know, the, the roasting is, is very uh, – Artful um, in the sense that it, that always is a little bit of English on the ways that they all the, the, every episode starts with 20 minutes of everybody pretty much roasting each other. But there is definitely a sense of uh, irony and cleverness and 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 repartee to it that might be absent from something else, which is why I think it's funny whenever Jimmy Carr goes on a, a roast like a Comedy Central roast. And it's sort of like somebody who actually knows how to play baseball, right, showing up at a baseball game and people are throwing the ball right at each other's skulls. Right. And it's like, OK, mm. you know, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to hit a double here. And uh, yeah, I don't know what you guys are all doing, but, you know, I came here to do my craft. Right. And Stuart Lee, relative to what Stuart Lee does, what Jimmy Carr does is very popular and lowbrow. Right. And, and Stuart Lee kind of craps on him for it. And also he craps on him because he's well known and successful. Um, but but for me, relative to even the good American stand ups who go on the show. So like Rob Delaney went on an episode of uh Eight and a half cats does countdown, and he kind of kind of sucked because he couldn't because his American sensibility couldn't play that kind of British wit game. Mm. And I and I think you're right in mentioning that in because because I want to think in the British wit game there is an emotional self protectiveness. It's not just that Americans are boorish and that that our men are emotionally closed off. Um, it's not just that sort of dominant Joe Rogan narrative. It's also this idea that. Um, that in the in the sort of culture of wit, there has to be a certain sort of stake associated with embarrassment. There has to be a certain sort of desire to not be embarrassed that mm. has to be part of the social repartee in order for the game of whether you're going to embarrass somebody or not to be kind of artful and pleasurable, mm. right? Like, and, and I think I, I think this a lot about things like Jane Austen novels or or the larger the larger sort of plot devices that are known as being present in Jane Austen novels, but are also present in Downton Abbey and everything else about kind of courtly culture, which is that there's a lot that you can do with what people say to each other if what they say to each other has consequences. Uh, and and if, if everybody at the dinner at Downton Abbey could say whatever they want, then the stakes would be gone, right? And the show wouldn't work. You wouldn't be able to have the kind of repartee that they had if there was no 
punishment or shame in being uncouth in a particular way or speaking out of turn in terms of status in a certain way. Uh, and so, yeah, which, is, which is why the couple of people who do really stand stand out, right? When uh, when Branson, when Tom and and Sybil come back um, from Ireland for the first time, and someone slips Tom a Mickey, right? And he mm-hmm. gets really belligerent and drunk at the table, uh, like until they until they discover that this has happened. Uh, like they're like, oh, this is this is uncouth. This this uncouth Irishman has as <laughs> you know <laughs> interrupted. And then at the end when. When uh, he's dating, Tom is dating uh, the teacher, uh, whose name is Miss Bunting, right? And she won't play the game. She has to, like, you know, uh, uh, take Lord Grantham to task and things like this in a, in a very sort of uncouth way. Like, this is, you know, this is terrible. Like, oh, will you please shut up or something? He says, uh, uh, the, the Earl says something very, um, you know, uh, he, he's, driven, he's driven to raise his voice, right? And this is very, uh, I'm very excited for the Downton Abbey movie in case you haven't been able to Oh yeah, it. for sure. Definitely, definitely. I mean, wh- one performer who's in that posse that I really like is Joe Wilkinson. He's really grown on me. He annoyed me at first, but uh, he d- he plays this sort of... Uh, uh, char- this character of a really kind of like on his last shred of dignity, downwardly mobile middle class dude who like goes around in a suit that sits him very poorly and looks like it's from a thrift store and speaks with this utter world weariness and unwillingness to do anything productive or useful for anybody or help anyone while at the same time. Uh, you know, b- b- trotting out a lot of empty braggadocio about how good he has at th- is at things, and I think that um, there's more th- that would that would seem to me relative to Stuart Lee as being very lowbrow, but it seems highbrow relative. It seems more wordplay oriented and kind of like well, maybe the word I'm looking for is continent. That there's a certain continence to it and restraint um, because he's not totally debasing himself. He still has to hold on to some small shred of dignity. Whereas when you're talking about Joe Rogan, you're really talking about trying to blow out the speakers, blow out the subwoofer on how much a person can debase themselves. Uh, right. I mean, he's like, although you, this story Lee does that too. The, here, that's an interesting thing, right? Is that um, they both have sections of their acts that are nonverbal and involve screaming uh, <laughs> and, mm. and, and, and doing this in a sort of like pay attention to me or or like what I've said, I'm not willing to say anything more to support what I said. I'm only going to let my nonverbalness speak to it. The biggest part of this in the Stuart Lee set is when he's insulting uh, the under 40s, yeah, which is young, a very well-chosen phrase, right? Young, young people, people under right? 40, people young under people, 40. people under 40 okay. uh, for being on their phone all day. And he does it by like kind of squealing and cooing uh, like what? Like a like a like an inflated piece of plastic that sounds roughly like a human <laughs> when you rub it on the floor, right? Like, and, and, and like touching his hand, like he's touching a phone. Yeah, miming, and miming kind of like flapping with a dolphin flipper against his other hand with a phone, you know, as though it's a phone, you know? Yeah, yeah, and so he'll do that, and he did that for like three solid minutes. Oh yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's like taking taking it long past taking it long past the point that it's funny uh, to the point where it becomes funny again. Past that to the point where it's really irksome, and then through that to the point where it's kind of sublime is uh, is like a hallmark of of uh, something like is a hallmark of of his technique. You know, his yeah, kind of meta comedic technique. Right, and so like in the Joe Rogan angle is more like. My audience has been drinking and I've given and I've presented them with images that are provocative, scary, 
taboo, right, that kind of are emotionally arousing. Perhaps there's an aspect, I mean, not perhaps, there's an aspect of misattribution of arousal to a lot of what Joe Rogan is doing, mm. where he says things that are sexually exciting or violent or threatening or nasty are confrontational, and all of them kind of build to attention that then is sort of infor- that is sort of encouraged to laugh in its relief. And one of the ways he does this is, you know, he yells. And I know and I feel like I do this on the podcast, too, when I get excited that that yelling all the time in order to kind of increase the uh, entertainingness of what you're saying yeah. is is more a characteristic of how exciting you find it. It's funny. And how exciting it, other people find it. I do it in Slack by talking in capital letters, by yeah. you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, it's like, I'm really excited about this, and I want you to be really excited about it, and I'm going to do that by yelling. <laughs> yeah, like the, the uh, like recently, you know, at work, like it's someone will t- text me something like, hey, we really need to do our, like, uh, we really need to do redo our disaster recovery plans after the outage we experienced this weekend, and I'll write back, you know, in three capital letters, yup! Yeah. <laughs> 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 Uh, hey, uh, before, you know, we're, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. That's my time, folks. Oh, Thanks wow. very much. But, uh, Pete, I, I, I wanted to ask you something. Uh, have you ever thought about doing stand-up comedy? Have you ever, have you ever done it? Is this sort of, I mean, and I don't mean like necessarily like club sets, but is this sort of solo performance, something you write and kind of stand up and say to an audience? Is this something that like, uh, appeals to you at all or that you have any experience with? It's tricky, right? I, I have experience with one-man performance art, like a little bit, right? Writing monologues and stuff. Sure. I did. I've done a little bit of that in the theater side of things, and I've done a ton of improv. But sure. I've always stayed away from stand-up comedy, um, partly probably because it's the hardest of those three things to do, I think. <laughs> um, or at the very least, it's the one where you're likely to be met with the least forgiveness. Um, but but the che- so is this these, to me? these days, especially. Well, envi- I mean, that's in this environment where you can't let the beast out of the cage. You as know? if there was ever an environment where stand up comics weren't putting themselves out there to be trashed. Yeah. Right. Like that's just part of the job. Uh, and and um, I don't necessarily do so great with the solitary work. But the thing that struck me in thinking about that, because I was thinking about that watching this is um, when Stuart Lee mentions this whole idea of of over exaggerating. Um, a premise, right? And it's sort of a, making yeah, yeah. an observation about life. So you're either over exaggerating your observation or you're you're saying the contrary thing. Um, the thing the the thing about imp- one of the things about improv that attracted me is trying to find the kind of like hidden truths in sort of Nicholas Cageian kind of unrealistic performance, mm. right? And like, what's the thing that sort of feels true, even if as you're saying it, it doesn't sort of sort of correspond to what you would believe in a natural sixth sense reality is like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it definitely seems really hard uh to to say to say something by saying more than what you say like hyperbole i mean that's kind of a really like highfalutin way of saying that like i have a weird relationship with hyperbole um mm. and, and with and uh, i'm not sure this this watching Stuart lee is challenging me to try to sort it out uh because when you you know for me when i say stuff like you know i really think ghost rider spirit of vengeance is a is a top-notch film that everybody should watch and take seriously like that feels funny partially because it feels like an overstatement of the position but i don't mean it as an overstatement of the position <laughs> you actually, i mean it 
<laughs> I mean it, but I'm laughing at it because I know the expectation is that it's an overstatement of the position. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, and I don't well, expect people to like or agree with what I say. Well, it is. Uh, I mean, it is funny because, you know, we all know and this is maybe more on my uh, more on my mind because we, um, you know, we uh, did a uh, we had a fun vacation where a lot of us, you know, from overthinking it had a fun weekend together last weekend, which is why we pre-taped 45 minutes about sleep uh, <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> you know, to release on the, on that day. But, um, you know, uh, that like we all perform kind of an exaggerated version of ourselves on the, yeah. or, a, yeah, exact certain parts of it exaggerated. Now I, I just want to be clear when I say that paradise lost by John Milton is the unsurpassed and unsurpassable greatest work of literature by anyone ever in any language. Uh, I'm not exaggerating at all. And I hope no one finds it funny because that would mean, uh, you know, that would mean you, you really were lower class. <laughs> so I guess what I should say is that maybe I should try now that Stuart Lee shows, has shown me how it's done. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess I think I think about it. I sort of look at it. I look at it and I I like I really I really do like I really do stand for this guy. And also like am kind of envious of the, the position that he managed to kind of carve out for himself in his environment, you know, where he does this kind of he do, he has kind of a man of letters quality about him and that he has like a university education. He writes reviews for newspapers like he's involved in sort of the marketplace of ideas. Ideas, uh, you know the the um, you know you get the sense that he's like has like literary uh, uh, education and kind of uh, you know stuff. He he worked in theater. He he actually like uh, he is the the co librettist and um, uh, director of Jerry Springer the Opera and has an Olivier Award uh, for that, which uh, he always, which he loves to bring up and say none of those people in the you know Lee Mack doesn't have an Olivier Award. His books are published in Tesco's minor by. Faber and bloody Faber, you know the the loves doing things like that. But like that, like that, this sort of like person of letters. You know, I I don't want to say man of letters because I actually think it's a richer uh, environment when it's not um, not men of letters. Uh, but like, uh, but everyone of letters, the the sort of culture of the culture of writing and kind of a culture of of ideas at an old kind of like human scale pace. You know, now I can't I can't keep up with like the development of a meme on TikTok that, you know, uh, like that, you know, is born, um, becomes popular, has its Baroque phase and becomes old within the course of 45 minutes, uh, with, you know, teenagers posting TikToks, uh, back and forth to each other. Like I don't, I don't work at that scale. I can't, I can't do it. And so I'm sort of, I'm a little, a little envious that, that we weren't born, you know, 10 or 15 years, 10 or 15 years earlier when our privilege would have been even more firmly entrenched than it was, uh, uh, than it is now. But then this sort of, this sort of solo performance, like, so I've done a little bit of solo performance. I did, um, I mean, as an actor, uh, in, you know, when I had an acting career, I, I did the David Sedaris, the monologue that was written by, I guess, adapted by Joe Mantello of David Sedaris' Sandaland Diaries, where he talks about, you know, working in Macy's and wearing the elf suit and you do it, you know, it's about an hour, 15 minutes long. It's the length of a, like a stand up theater show. Uh, you do it in an elf suit, you know, or actually if you're me, you change into the elf suit on stage in order to alienate and confound the audience. But, uh, you know, I did that. 
that, and I really like it. And I've done some also in in addition to like the the normal acting work, the like the doing scenes with people that are meant to like you know be the mimesis of real life. Um, I do I do really enjoy like I have done some training in like clown stuff, and I would say that the big difference with clown is that you acknowledge the audience, and the audience becomes a character. And I, it, it 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 strikes me as like in some ways though though these method these like Stanislavski uh, derived um, 20th century psychologically realistic techniques of acting are all about like the truth, you know, like getting to the emotional truth. Like it has always struck me as somehow much, much more truthful to acknowledge that there are, you know, 500 other people in the room with you. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the, the denial of that seems to me like a, a, a very strange artifice, a useful one artistically sometimes, but like a strange one. And that, that is kind of morally unquestioned all the time. And so I really enjoy, uh, I really enjoy clowning. And so the, the, like, but, but like you, I have a lot of trouble with solitary work and that, that like one of the reasons why I think overthinking it has been successful is that we've always conceived of it as a collaboration, you know, is that like we, we do it together. It's a, it's a, it's a group effort. And by, by successful, I suppose I, I mean at least long lived, (laughs) We're, we're coming up on 11 years now. That's not nothing. And that, like, um, it's really the longest relationship I've ever had in, uh, in my life outside of my family. And that, um, you know, the, the, the solitary nature of, like, going to do that. But then, like, I don't know if you, like, people talk about writing on stage, you know, and um, working out material in front of an audience in five-minute chunks, and you can go out with three bullet points and kind of work it up in five minutes, and then, like, ex post facto, you know, shape it into a show and something like that. And I, w- I wonder if there's not... Uh, there's not something like that. We, we really peaked too early, Pete, because like, had we peaked, had we been in 2015, um, at the level of popularity that we were at, uh, in the much less crowded podcast marketplace of 2010, um, and, you know, had we been doing our kinds of numbers from then in 2015, we would definitely have a live show that we would be touring around the country <laughs> and we would be doing overthinking it live much in the same way that we did the, the, in the, the grand old days of, of, uh, uh, Geek Week, we did uh, uh, overthinking it live uh, there. Anyway, that's my time. <laughs> I was going to say the big issue is that is we'd have to do the same material every day for eighteen months, and I don't think we've done the same material twice in the whole eleven years. I mean, maybe of course individual sentences, but like above the level of paragraphs, I'm not think I'm not sure we ever really trot out and refine so much as uh, uh, spray and pray. So. Unsurpassed <laughs> and unsurpassable. Best episode ever. Thank you very much, everyone, <laughs> and good night. Uh, all right, everyone, tip your waitress. Try the veal. I hear it's divine and continue subjecting the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Waka waka. Waka flock of flame. <laughs> See, I, I put it there. You didn't expect it, but it was a surprise, and you laughed out of surprise. I didn't have to punch up and have to punch down. I didn't have to punch at all. I just had to say something that you didn't expect. And there you go. So watch Fluffy Iglesias.